10 weeks, we're actually following this premise that life isn't discovered in having the right answers. The secret to life is asking the right questions. And for the next 10 weeks, we're going to ask a question every week that will root you in a way maybe you've never been rooted before, so you can endure in life. The most important question we could start with is, who is God? And National Geographic built a whole series out on that question. And the answer is really simple. He's Morgan Freeman, right? <laughs> the reality is you ask 100 people that question, and we saw about 40, you're going to get 40 different answers. But the futility of it, I wish I could just sit with those people, and, and I'm not judging any of them, but I wish I could sit with them and ask a follow-up question, and it's this, what do you base that on? It's like me asking, or you asking my one-year-old daughter when they were one, I have five, uh, who are your parents? In their limited scope, and their limited mind, they're trying to figure out life, and of course they're not going to come up with an accurate answer. We can't discover who God is on our own. What I'd like to do, and our whole church is based on this very question, by the way, what I'd like to do is look at what God says about himself. And let me say at the start, when I talk about God as himself in a male pronoun, I'll use the word he, him, uh, God is not male. Uh, God has revealed himself in a way that we can understand him. He's beyond gender. One day we'll get to heaven. God has no form, really. We'll get to heaven. We won't see a male on a throne. But he's revealed himself that way so we can have a much clearer grasp of who he is. How do you at all put the infinite in human language? It's impossible. But we do have the eternal word of God. And so we're going to look at what God says about himself. Who is God? We've seen about 40 people, National Geographic's trying to build that out. Why don't we look at what God says and how he, uh, what he says about himself. So grab your message notes, if you will. And I put most of the scriptures in there. There's going to be some that aren't in there. And let me build out who is God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. And I will tell you, even as I say that, I know there's some of you here who don't hold to the Bible as your authority. And you're so welcome here. Uh, and I would just ask you to suspend judgment, if that's you, and track with me for the next 25 minutes so you can have a better understanding why followers of Jesus get so excited about him and want to follow him so passionately. Maybe you'll gain some understanding there. But if you ask me who God is, I'm going to tell you, and if you ask, what do you base that on? It's the Word of God, the Bible. So as you open the Bible in Genesis 1-1, you see in the top of page 1 there, in the beginning, God the first person we meet in the Bible is God. And the first thing we learn about God is that he existed even before there was a beginning. When time started, this is what it means, God already was. God existed before there was a beginning. He is without beginning. He is without end. He's without equal. He exists outside of time. God sees the start and finish of time. He sees your whole life in one view. That's why God can break a foot on that because he knows that broken foot ultimately is going to prepare him for eternity. He sees your end from the beginning. That's what we learn about God. And what is this God up to when we're introduced to him? He's being creative. I love this. He's creating the heavens. He's creating the earth. He's creating the oceans. He's creating the lands, the planets, the galaxies, the animals. You get this image reading the first chapter of the first book of the Bible that God is like this master artist with a blank, multidimensional palette. And he's giving color and form to animals and mountains and clouds. 
and the trajectories and orbits of the planets and the speed of the revolution of the earth. The whole time he's repeating this one phrase, it's over and over again in Genesis 1, this is good, this is good, this is good. Like a master artist stepping back, looking at his piece of art, God is delighting in it and saying, this is so good. I see that image of God. I've seen it in each one of my daughters when they were young, when they took chalk or went to a sidewalk or when they took uh, crayons and went to a blank piece of paper and created a very primitive form of art for them. But they delighted in it and they wanted to show it off to me and to the neighbors and to mom and everyone. And what was the crescendo of God's creation? Look around for a minute. Look in the face of another person right now. Look in the face of another person. You're looking at the crescendo of God's creation. Men and women who bear his image, who are made in his likeness. And I'm not just talking about people in church. I'm talking about every person on that screen that we just saw. I'm talking about every person you will lay eyes on today and for the rest of your life. Every human being bears the image of God. We are the creative overflow of his loving, unified, intentional creation. We are the creative overflow of love. I understand this also as a parent. We have five daughters, and we didn't uh, set out to have five daughters. God had that for us. But we didn't create them so that one day they'd be our social security system. We created them as the overflow of our love, to share that love with them to mold them and raise them so one day they can be producing adults who reproduce and so on and so on. That's kind of how we were created. There was a, a community in the heavens called the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a perfect community. And the overflow of that love, they said, let's create out of this love for others to be in this community with us. You see that on the top of page two. Open up to page two of your message notes. A God who's creative. Look at this. Then God said, let us, that's an allusion to the Trinity that always existed in time, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. As followers of Christ, we actually believe our purpose on this earth is really found from foundationally in these verses. And I'll build that out in a second. So read carefully with me. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, but he didn't create us without purpose. We see in these passages a threefold purpose for the reason that we exist. And I've always tried to have my life tethered to these three divine purposes for why I have breath and life. Look at this. I put it this way for you. We were created for rulership. What does that mean? It means we we're created to partner with God in the stewarding of his creation. Both uh, physical creation like trees and grass and the ozone layer and stuff like that, but also to steward with him and ruling over animate creation. And then relationship. We are created to live vertically, dependently on God, 
But we are created to live in community. You weren't made to live alone. You can't be who you were created to be alone. In them, we were created for reproduction. There was a special relationship God set aside called a marriage. And God said, out of a marriage, I want you to do what I've done. Out of the overflow of love, reproduce. Now, that was God's design for humanity. And we'll get to this in a minute. Something went terribly wrong. Terribly, terribly wrong. And if you uh, will doubt me in a few minutes that sin has entered the world, all you have to do is look at these three aspects of our purpose, and you've got to agree with me. Human beings aren't doing a good job in rulership. We've turned that into dictatorship, into violence, into hate, into waste. Human beings aren't doing very good at relationship. On a whole, as a global society, we don't relate well to each other. We go to war, we victimize, we're violent. And we do this on basis of creed or skin color or other things. We're not very good at reproducing either, frankly. Only in our own country, we do just the opposite. We choose pregnancies out of convenience in some ways. And if it's not convenient, it's very easy to end that. And I don't mean to hurt anyone in this room who's been a part of that. But I'm just trying to say we're not good at things like that. So after creating humans, originally God stepped back and he said, you know what, this is very good. It's not just good, this is very good. But then something went wrong. Now like I just said, just looking at those three words, we can all agree that something is terribly wrong with the human race. As advanced as we are, and I thank God for our advancement. Thank God for all the information available to us. Thank God for medical advancement and technological advancement. I never dreamed I'd see the day when I'd literally, like I did two months ago, sit in a car that drove itself. That's amazing. I don't know if I thank God for that, but I'm just amazed by that, the advancement. But for all the advancement, are we growing in character? Is our world growing to be a safer world? I think we just take for granted things like passcodes on our phone or not having to uh, walk in certain places when it's dark or having to lock our doors and not only one lock but two locks. And that's not even good enough anymore, so you've got to get an alarm system. The tension we feel in conflict and the hatred we feel that wells up within us, I think we just take for granted what comes across our screens on a daily basis of violence and wasting of society and wasting of food when people are starving to death. I think we just take that for granted, but I'm here to tell you, uh, for all of us, just think with me, something is terribly wrong with the human race. The first man and the first woman made a choice. They chose, and we choose even to this day, here's what creates the wrong, to live independently from God. We say, God, uh, we want it our way rather than your way. Rather than trusting your words, your boundaries, your definitions, your authority, your provision. In essence, this is the moniker over humanity. I'm stereotyping, but as a whole, God isn't enough. And so I'm going to do my life my way. And I love, Matt, how you put it at that stage in your life. When it's convenient, I'll ask your help. But for the most part, you stay in your little box for an hour on Sunday, and you let me do my life my way. I asked the Dr. Phil question very humbly. How's that working for our culture? For you. For me. Uh, here's 
the genesis, if you will, of that. And you see the next page two, something went wrong. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this. That should be Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and then verse 4 and 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree of the garden? That's just a personification of sin, of doing life my way. And you feel that, and I feel that every time we choose to disobey. Did God really say you should give money away? You've worked hard for that money. Keep more of it for yourself. Did God really say you should be selfless? Come on, you deserve this. Did God really say you should honor people as image bearers and treat them with certain rights? They're lazy. I go through this all the time. Did God really say lay down your life for your wife? Did God really say these are the boundaries in dating and these are the boundaries in marriage? All that, we feel it all the time. The temptation and lure, are we going to be dependent on God, his authority, his definitions, or are we going to live independently? You must not eat from any tree of the garden. He says, you certainly will not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. Well, the Genesis account goes on. They bit from the forbidden fruit. Everyone look right here, please. Because I know you're going to understand. I'm going to use a metaphor, but you're going to understand this. The fruit bit back. And they were scarred. Something foreign entered into God's very good creation. It's called sin. And when sin entered the world, it was not just a fall, it was a curse. And they would discover it's not just that sin's bad, and around here we say it this way, it's not that it's nasty or naughty, it's dehumanizing. We quit being human when we live independently of God. So the man, the woman, the serpent, all of creation, they felt the sting of the curse, and we still feel it to this day, so that, quote, not the way things are supposed to be becomes the way things are. And we just take it as normal. I want you to see six iconic images from the last two decades, and you tell me if this is the way things are supposed to be. Watch this. What goes through your mind? Let's talk to each other when you look at those images. Anyone want to share? Destruction. Destruction. Sorrow. Dehumanizing. Dehumanizing. A broken world. world. A warning to turn back. back. Death. Death. Pain. Pain. Honestly, I don't need to look at an image. I can look in the mirror and see the effects of sin. And my question, who is God? When I look at those images, did God fail? 
What's God's response to that? Is he angry? If he were to open the door from heaven and walk into earth, would he come with a big club and say, oh my gosh, are you going to get it? Is he punishing us through tsunamis and earthquakes and storms and what have you, even disease? Is that God's sick punishment? Well, the central plot line of the narrative of the Bible was set in motion after what's called the fall, the curse of humankind. And I don't have time to give a full retelling of this story, but it was actually the fall that helps us see the most vivid image of God in scriptures. And so I got to truncate things. Soon after sin entered the world, God called one man, Abraham, into a special relationship with him. But Abraham chose independence rather than dependence. Even though God promised, from you, I will bring a whole race of people through which I will come into the world. You've got to hear this next line. Abraham's rebellion didn't negate God's promise. Just like my rebellion doesn't negate God's promise. He's not put off by our rebellion. So from Abraham comes a whole race of people, dear to God's heart, Israel. And they're all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And God says, I'm using you not because you're the biggest and the best, but because you're the smallest and the least. And through you, I will come. But Israel turned to God and said, you've got to tell us who you are, specifically Moses. The greatest prophet in Israel says, you've got to tell me who you are. And what I'm going to give you next is not in your notes. It won't be on the screen. But when you ask who God is, if you ask God who he is, what I'm going to give you next is the most quoted and paraphrased verse in all the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, here's the verse that's used more often than any other verse in the Bible. Uh, uh, Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 to 7, because Moses said, tell me who you are. And here's what God said who he was. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That verse is repeated or paraphrased multiple times in the scriptures. It's like God is saying, you've run away from me, but I'm running after you. And that's exactly what God did. The most vivid picture of who God is and the best definition from the Jewish people from Israel came a human being named Jesus Christ. And Jesus walked the earth, and unlike any other human being, he lived a life that was radically different. And he made this claim, I am God in the human flesh. I have taken a form you can relate to. The God that you're praying to, the God that you're throwing darts up in the air to, I'm him. And I came to give you a living, breathing example of who God is. But I've also come with a message. You've run away from me. And I've run after you. Now, don't miss this, okay? Give me your best for the next few minutes. I've run after you not to condemn you, nor to judge you. I've taken a form to save you and to rescue you. Where do I get that? Well, let's look at some verses. Uh, John chapter 1. I'm on the top of page 3, the God who rescues. In the beginning, this biographer of Jesus takes the same language from Genesis because he wants to put the two verses together, Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's the allusion to the Trinity. The Word was God. And look at this. The Word became flesh. In other words, the Word became a human. God became human, and He dwelt among us. What's amazing about Jesus is He claimed to be more than a messenger or teacher or spiritual leader. He claimed to be God in a human form. And then he backed up that claim through his life, through his miracles, through his death, through his resurrection. He was the most beautiful, perfect human being who ever walked the planet. God in a human body. And you know what we did? We killed him. And it wasn't just enough to kill him. We shamed him. We ridiculed him. We beat him. We stripped him naked. We took him to the point of death and held him there as long as is humanly possible. That's that's how far we had rebelled. Who is God? What's he like? What does he love? What does he hate? What makes him laugh? What makes him cry? Look at Jesus. What made Jesus weep? That's what makes God weep. How did Jesus treat moral rebels? That's how God looks at you and me. What made Jesus laugh? What broke his heart? On that cross, and it's the reason why we have a cross pretty centrally in our sanctuary, Jesus took upon himself our sin, the punishment we deserve for our rebellion. And in doing so, he made a way to restore all that was lost through our rebellion. Jesus made it very clear that through him, a door to heaven was now open. And don't miss these next two line, words. To everyone. Christianity is the most inclusive religion on the planet. True biblical Christianity. Anyone, anyone can come to God through Christ. Regardless of your gender, race, age, religious upbringing, moral track record, or any other human measurement. A forever relationship with God, void of his wrath and condemnation, which hadn't been experienced since the garden, was now available to every human being. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave. And if you doubt or wonder who Jesus is and the significance he has in your life, I would encourage you to focus your study right there. The resurrection. If Jesus in a corpse is still in the grave, then what we're doing here is a farce, the Bible says. But the fact that the tomb was empty and that um, less than a month later, his followers were in the street saying, he's alive, he's alive, and no one could produce a corpse, validated everything Jesus taught and validated who he said he was, God. So God, in coming to earth as Jesus, extends his hand to rescue us. That's in essence what God did. Ran into a burning building and said, come with me. Now, growing up in my home, uh, I grew up with a dad who worked way too many hours. So my mom pretty much raised me. And when I would rebel against my mom, if the, you know, if the rebellion was minor, she'd take care of it. But if it was major, here's what I would get. Wait till your dad comes home. Anyone else ever get that? Didn't make the homecoming very fun. A lot of us think Jesus was that. He was, like, my dad would come home to punish me. The wait till your dad comes home. God took a form in a human being and said, I'm here because the church couldn't get it right or the synagogue couldn't get it right or the temple couldn't get it right. I'm here to beat the living tar out of you and punish you for all that you've done. 
And I'm here to tell you the Bible says nothing could be further from the truth. The message of Jesus was this. Your sin has caused a condition worse in you than you could never imagine. It was the ultimate um, point of Jesus coming face to face, the ultimate intervention, if you will. But my love, Jesus said, is greater than your sin. And on the cross, I took the punishment you deserve so I can forgive you and restore you into the person I had in mind when I created you. I love how you put it, Matt, the best version of you possible. That's what Jesus came to give. But then Jesus says this, I won't force myself on you. The choice is yours. You can choose me or not. But choices have consequences. And people have chosen no and said no to God and no to Jesus. And that's why we have images like we have. I'll close with one verse. John chapter 6, verse 40 says this. This is the will of my Father. These are the words of Jesus. This is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks to the Son, that would be Jesus, and believes in him would have eternal life. That's a forever relationship with God. And I will raise him up on the last day. I want to close in just 30 seconds talking about the last day. A lot of us don't think of the last day. Because a lot of us, most of us are pretty young. But every one of us has a last day when we will face God. My life's all about two days. Today and that day, my last day. I want to be prepared for the last day. Last night we were having dinner. God bless you. We were having dinner. And uh, my daughters and I, and we have this thing called table talk where you pull a card. And the card, I forget the question, but it was like, if you could um, do anything with your life, what would it be? Something of that nature. And I told the girls, I would prepare everybody for their last day when they face God. They don't have to fear him then. They're in a relationship with him. And then it gets good. Jesus said, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him on the last day. So actually, we're talking about the 10 very important questions. The question today is, who is God? There's something more important than the question, who is God? And that's God's answer to who is God. We've seen that in scripture today. But honestly, everyone look right here. There's one thing more important than God's answer to that question, who is God? Our response. How do you respond? We'd like to leave you with ABC by way of response. We'd like to encourage everyone, because this is a grace and a gift to every one of us. Uh, What it means to be in a relationship with God is, A, admit you're a moral rebel that you're a sinner, that you've chosen at some point in your life to do your life your way, on your terms. You haven't met God's standard. We're all in that boat, men and women. We're all in that boat. B, believe in Jesus and what he has done, that he came to forgive your sin. He didn't come to condemn you or judge you or smote you, whatever that means. He came to rescue you. C, commit to follow Jesus some point with Jesus' hand extended, you say, take me. Take my life. I don't even know what this fully means, but I know I can't remain independent of you. I want to do life your way. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it's the only adequate response and proper response to how God has revealed himself to us. So we're going to close. I'm going to close this in prayer. I'm not going to wrap this up. I'm going to hold the room, actually, in prayer. And we're going to worship out of this. I would ask that you just bow your head.
and respond with me. Who is God to you? The most important aspect of this morning is not only how God has revealed himself, but what is your response to that? For many of us this morning, our response is to be renewed in our mind regarding who God is and to hear the good news all over again and go, oh, I love that. Thank you for opening my eyes and thank you for the benefits of committing to you. Yeah, life isn't perfect and no one gets out of life unscathed, but I have a purpose and I have a sense and I'm prepared for that day. For some in this room, you're going, oh my gosh, I've never come to this place where I've committed. You've walked me through that ABC, and yes, I admit I'm a rebel. Yes, I believe Jesus is who he said he is. But today, afresh, anew, I commit to Jesus. Is that you? Can you say that this morning? And before you leave this building, settle that question. I'm no longer going to do life independently. I'm going to jump into community. I'm going to commit to Jesus and let him define me and define everything around me. Listen, committing to Jesus isn't some mystical thing. It's much like what I did almost 26 years ago on an altar with my wife. She said, I do. I said, I do. And then we journeyed into the unknown called the future together based on a relationship and a commitment we made to each other. Jesus says, I do. Committing to saying back to him, I do. Maybe my words can be your words in prayer. And you can make these yours. It's a prayer of commitment. God, thank you for rescuing me and coming for me. I am a moral rebel. And I thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross for my sin and my rebellion. I want to be the best version of me I can be. And apart from you, that's not possible. So today I'm opening my life and committing to follow you. Step in and make me the person you want me to be. I don't want to live independent of you. I want to be dependent and in relationship. From this day forward, I'm yours. I'd like you to hold this. I'd like you to question in your mind, God, who are you? What do you love? What breaks your heart? What makes you weep? If you prayed with me, I'm going to come back at the end of this gathering and give you some directives on how to build in that relationship. Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.